May it please the court and counsel, I'm Matt Barber here for the appellant, Amanda Visser. This is a contract interpretation case. It's a contract interpretation case about primary underinsured motorist benefits. We've got two state farm policies here, and they both apply to Amanda Visser's injuries because she's an insured under both policies. Both policies provide that if more than one state farm policy applies to Ms. Visser's injuries, she is entitled to the single highest applicable UIM limit. Neither state farm policy limits the amount that Ms. Visser can recover to the policy covering the vehicle she occupied at the time. To the contrary, the express language in the policies provide that she is entitled to the single highest limit. Because both policies provide for a total of $250,000 in underinsured motorist benefits to Ms. Visser, she respectfully asks this court to reverse the lower courts. State Farm relies on the underinsured motorist priority statute, 65B.49 subdivision 3A5. But that reliance is a non-starter because this is not an excess case, and the no-fault statutes only come into play where there's an insurance policy that omits coverage that's required by the statute. Neither State Farm policy here omits any coverage required by the No-Fault Act, which takes us to the general rule that this court supplied since at least 1935, that parties to an insurance contract may contract as they desire so long as coverage required by the statute is not omitted. And in that situation, the insurer's liability... What do we do about the language in the policy? I mean, if we agree with you right down the line, we get all the way to the policy language covering the Chevy, and there's a line in that paragraph that says State Farm gets to make the choice. I mean, if we're going to follow the route that you'd like to have us follow, doesn't State Farm get to say, sorry, the Pontiac coverage is what applies, we're done? How do you respond to that? Right. So the Pontiac policy applies for the exact... or the Chevy policy applies for the exact same reason as the Chevy policy. They have identical grants of coverage, and it says that they can choose to make the payments between either of the two policies, which is a pretty good indicator that both policies or more than one policy applies to her injuries. It just gives them the choice to pay a little from one policy or a little from another policy. And here they've paid the $100 from the Pontiac policy, so they're still on the hook for the additional $150. No, they're not. The policy language... I mean, you're telling us we have to rely on the policy language, and the policy language says they get to choose which policy applies. What do we do about that? They don't get to choose which one applies. They get to choose how to divvy up the payments of the $250. That's what that part of the policy provides for. They don't get to choose... And the reason for that is? Because that's what the language says in the policy. Well, but counsel, the last sentence says, we may choose one or more policies from which to make payment. Here they chose one policy from which to make the payment. Didn't they have the right to do that? They had the right to do that, Your Honor, but both policies have that same language in it, and because they both apply, then they can choose to make it from the other policy as well. But they're still on the hook for the total of $250,000. If they make it from a policy that they only underwrote for $100,000, that's State Farm's mistake. You know, here's my problem with this. Now, maybe you're right, and the language of the policies control, and we're going to have to have a conversation with opposing counsel about that. But if the concept of paying a premium means anything, it seems to me that when you buy a premium, you know, underinsured motorist coverage typically follows the vehicle. You pay a premium for it based on that. And it seems to me that if we go down the road that you've suggested, 
um, the connection between premium and coverage becomes very, um, very tenuous. But that's only because State Farm wrote its policies so that both apply to Ms. Visser's injuries. It could have followed the route that it did in the Lefebvre case where it limited coverage to the occupied vehicle because the person wasn't insured under the occupied vehicle policy. We don't have any exclusions or reductions in coverage like that in these two policies. And this tracks with this court's decision in Lynch where even if there is a permissible reduction in coverage or exclusion, this court won't read it into the policy. It's up to the insurance company to put that in there. But uh, don't you have to have language that expressly provides for coverage here? When the Court of Appeals looked at the policy, that they found um, that uh, the policy was silent on whether more than one policy applies. And that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for here is, is positive language that shows that more than one policy applies. Right. So if you look at the Chevy policy, it has, the, it has an identical grant of primary UIM coverage as the Pontiac policy. And State Farm's already conceded that the Pontiac policy applies. So therefore, the Chevy policy also applies because it has the exact same language. Um, the Chevy policy provides we, meaning State Farm, will pay compensatory damages for bodily injury an insured is legally entitled to recover from the owner or driver of an underinsured motor vehicle. The bodily injury must be sustained by an insured and caused by an accident that involves the operation, maintenance, or use of an underinsured motor vehicle as a motor vehicle or motorcycle. So that's the affirmative grant of coverage under the Chevy policy. There's nothing in the Chevy policy that says we're going to remove that coverage because you occupied a different vehicle that we insured. Instead, you go to the if more, um, more than one UIM policy applies provision and it contemplates State Farm providing a total of $250,000 in UIM coverage here. Council, um, before we even get into the language of the policy, we've got subdivision 3A, uh, 3A5. And I, I know your argument is 3A5 doesn't apply because subdivision seven allows a greater coverages or benefits. But I'm kind of wondering, subdivision seven seems to say that if anything else sets a floor, then the, the policy can go higher. But 3A5 doesn't seem to be just a floor, it seems to be a ceiling. It's saying that if at the time of the accident the injured person is occupying a motor vehicle, the limit is the limit specified for that motor vehicle. So it seems to be setting a ceiling, it's a command, not just, um, not just a floor. What do you say to that? Right, and this is a, it's a default rule. And because both policies provide more coverage than the No Fault Act requires, we don't have to get to that default rule. Yeah, but I'm not sure it's a default rule. It seems to be a command. It says, if this situation applies, then the limit specified for the motor vehicle is the limit. So it, it, I don't see any default in there. Right. Um, in addition, well, State Farm's policy says that we will incorporate the Chevy policy limit. It says if more than one applies, and it clearly applies because it's got the same grant of UIM coverage, then you get the highest single limit. So it's adding that limit into the occupied vehicle policy by its language of the, of the policies. Um, in addition, subdivision... So your, your position is the limit specified for that motor vehicle is 250K? Correct, because State Farm wrote its policies to say that. Thank you. And in addition, subdivision seven says that nothing in the No Fault Act shall be construed as preventing an insurer from offering other benefits or coverage in addition to those required to be offered under this section. 
So this court shouldn't construe the priority statute as a limiting statute. It's a map. It tells insureds where to look to, for insurance in the first instance. But we don't need to follow the map because both policies provide more coverage than the No Fault Act requires. So essentially, the No Fault Act doesn't apply at all here, really. Correct, Your Honor. The, stat or the two policies are clear that they both cover her injury, and because they both apply to her injury, she's entitled to the single highest limit. We don't stack the limits because that's clear from the policies, but she is entitled to the single highest limit because her mom, Cheryl Visser, paid premiums on both of these policies. So we're just asking that Cheryl gets the protection for her daughter that she paid for and that State Farm wrote in its contract so that State Farm is held to its word here. Unless the court has any other questions, um, uh, Ms. Visser. The one question I wanted to ask you is the, is the relevance of the definition of policy. I mean, each, the, the Pontiac policy talks and has a definition of the policy, which makes it pretty clear that it's the Pontiac policy, not some other policy. I'm just wondering if you think the definition, how the, how the policy defines what is this policy has any relevance at all to the argument. And I think I see uh, what your honor is talking about. It's on the addendum on page seven. It says this policy consists of, and it yes. says, okay. And the Chevy policy is identical to that too, and it has the exact same language. So they both are policies by their own definition, and they both apply because of their identical grants of UIM coverage. Um, so by because they're both policies and they both apply, I don't. But when the Pontiac policy is talking about what covers, it's talking about this, the Pontiac policy covers Pontiac accidents. And the Chevy policy says that it also covers Chevy accidents, but then both policies say that because you're an insured under both policies, you're entitled to the single highest limit. So what if the, the what if that language you just referred to, uh, I mean, there, there arguably could be two reasonable interpretations of that. You know, one is the interpretation you're giving, one is that really is to deal with the situation once you start to get into primary and excess coverage. So if we do find two reasonable interpretations of the language, and it's amb ambiguous, do you have, how should we think about that then? Right, where it's ambiguous, then it's construed strictly against State Farm as the drafter of this contract of adhesion, so it would go in favor of Ms. Visser and in favor of coverage for her. And is there any anything for the legislative history that would tell us anything about answering that question that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware from the legislative history, and we don't even need to get into the No Fault Act, which would have the legislative history, because all the policies here provide more than the coverage required by the No Fault Act. And what's the, is there case law precedent that you rely on? I, I suppose it's this 80 years of interpreting the contract, but beyond that, is there anything else that says that you don't look to the No Fault Act at all if you're a, uh, the policy is compliant in every way? I agree that the Bobbick case, which cites the Juster case from 1935, those are the two that we're relying on most heavily. But then there's also the Carlson case, and our interpretation is consistent with that rule, which provides that 
the policy governs the scope of UIM available, not the No-Fault Act. And in that situation, there wasn't um, any uh, coverage that was omitted by the statute in those policies. It didn't expressly say what the court's asking, but it's a pretty good indicator there too. Remind me again how you distinguish the West Bend case. Yes. So there are at least two critical distinctions here. The first is that the injured person in West Bend, Oxac, I think is how his last name is pronounced, he argued that the priority statute required pro or co-primary UIM benefits from two different insurers. That's not our argument. Uh, we're not relying on the No Fault Act. We're relying on the plain language of State Farm's policies. Um, in addition, uh, we've got one insurer who wrote both policies, not two different insurers who are fighting over priority. And that takes us to the second critical difference, which is in the West Bend policy, it set forth a schedule of priorities. And it was clearly excess. The West Bend policy was clearly excess because the injured person wasn't insured under the occupied vehicle policy. We don't have that language here. Council, does it does it make any difference though in West Bend that I mean you're right that it was about ultimately about excess coverage, but there's a lot of language in there as you as you indicated where Mr. Olzek uh, was arguing that the MSI and the West Bend policy were co-primary, and while not directly analogous to this situation, that seems to sort of be your argument as well. And, the, and then after they, after the court talks about these are what co-primary here means, it goes into that, the language basically, um, well, largely refuting your position that you, that, that the coverage follows the, the vehicle. And that's how we've interpreted it under, under, uh, under the No Fault Act. So what do we do with that, I guess, is what I'm asking. Right. And that goes back to the the particular language of each policy in each case is critical. The policy language here in State Farm's policies doesn't preclude any coverage based on being an insured under the occupied vehicle coverage. Um, instead, it has that provision that says if you're an insured, you're covered under both policies. And if more than one State Farm policy applies, then the most we will pay is the highest single limit. That language wasn't present in the two competing policies in West Bend. Well, this really comes down to kind of as the district court said, we have to decide that if question, if one, if both policies apply. Because if we determine that absent some express language that they both do not apply, it sounds like you would agree then we're back into the into West Bend and sort of the No Fault Act. That's right. But by the plain language of both policies, they do apply. They have the same grant of UIM coverage language, and State Farm's already conceded that the Pontiac policy applies, so the Chevy policy. But why does apply. it matter that they have the same grant of UIM policies? How does that, I guess I'm missing the connection, why that means necessarily that both apply in this instance? They both apply because she's an insured under yeah. both policies, and both policies say that if you're an insured and you're injured because of an underinsured motor vehicle, you're entitled to coverage under each policy. So if there weren't that language that prohibited stacking in the two policies, Ms. Visser would be entitled to stack the 100 on top of the 250 if there weren't for the statute that says you can't do that. But the plain language of the policy would stack them um, because they both apply because she's an insured, and that's what triggers the application is her being injured by an underinsured motor vehicle and being an insured. Council, what case stands for the proposition that an automobile policy can apply 
as primary UIM coverage when the automobile covered by that policy was not involved in the accident? I don't know that there's one directly on point, but there are many cases that say you look to the plain language of the policy and that's what we're relying on. I don't believe there's one specifically on point for that, but there are a bunch that say when you're relying on the language of the contract, the contract controls as long as there's no um, mandatory coverage that's been omitted. So council in um, 3A, there is an anti-stacking provision, it's 3A6. So what over and above the anti-stacking theory does subdivision 3A5, the first sentence, provide? In other words, what, what is the point, what is the purpose of 3A5? So the purpose of 3A5, it's to tell regular everyday Minnesotans where to look for underinsured motorist coverage. Six says, once you know where to look, you don't get to add them together. Five says, first you look. So 3A5 is simply an educational tool. So if you're in an accident, you can open the statute book and say, <clears throat> hmm, I think I should go to my uninsured, underinsured motorist coverage. Correct, yes. But then why, why didn't the legislature just say, um, if you have an accident, then you should go to your policy? It says a lot more in the first sentence of 3A5, doesn't it? It does. It's a command. But the, the last two sentences, those are for excess cases. This is a primary case. Yeah, and I'm focused on the first sentence. Yep. What, what, the, the first sentence does nothing other than educate Minnesotans that they might have insurance to cover their loss? I believe that's correct. And I think it's the Becker case. It's either Becker or Carlson that says that subdivision five doesn't set forth what the required coverages are. It's a priority list. It tells, insur it tells insurance where to look for coverage. It doesn't operate to cut off coverage. So is it, is it setting the context for how to determine when excess coverage applies or not? Correct. So you couldn't do sentences two and three without the preamble of sentence one, essentially? Correct. You have to read all three sentences together. And in context, it says, if you're under this situation, this is where you look. If you're under a different situation, this is where you look. And this is how it's limited. And if you're saying there's no question over excess excess insurance, then 3A5 just doesn't, we don't look at it at all. Correct. And especially where both policies provide coverage above and beyond, so we don't even need to get down that rabbit hole. Council, I just want to ask you a question about the policy. Do you have it there? I do. I've got both policies. Uh, page 27 of the um, Pontiac policy is what I want to ask you about. Um, you rely on the, on the, um, so the caption section I want to ask is if other underinsured motor vehicle coverage applies. You rely on paragraph one of that um, section. I want to ask you about paragraph two. The underinsured motorist vehicle coverage provided by this policy applies as primary coverage. Do you see that paragraph? Yes. Is that at all relevant to the argument presented today? That par paragraph two? It is not um, because it says that the second subparagraph, so 2A2, starting back at one, it says and, so you have to include what's in number two. And number two provides that underinsured motor vehicle coverage provided by one or more sources other than State Farm. There are no other sources of UIM other than State Farm here. 
It's confusing though, because the introductory paragraph does not end with a colon, it ends with a period, which suggests it's a standalone idea. That's true, but then it, it's the same language in the Chevy policy. So then the Chevy policy is also primary. So they're co-primary the same. Well, except that nobody was occupying the Chevy. That's true, but then the second sentence says if, and it says the if is conditioning when that first sentence applies. So it says here's I would agree condition. with you if there was a colon, but, but there's a period, so it's kind of confusing. But there wouldn't be a need to have subparagraphs A1 and A2 if that were the end of the analysis. It says this is the analysis to perform to get back to the first part, number two. And because there is no other insurance coverage other than State Farm, you don't, you don't go down that route. All right, I think we're good. All right. You have you. five minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Ms. Scriber. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Kimberly Scriber and I'm here today on behalf of respondent State Farm. Um, statute 65B.49 subdivision 3A5 provides the answer to the issue in this case. That statute provides that underinsurance benefits come from the policy for the vehicle that was occupied at the time of the accident. There is no so, question. So um, I think opposing counsel is going to get up here in a few minutes and say that's all very fine and good, but we're relying solely on the policy language, which suggests otherwise. What do we do about his policy-based argument? So in this case, you cannot read the State Farm policy out of context with the No Fault Act. And in Pepper, um, the case of Pepper, um, the court said that policy provisions such as what we have here cannot contravene applicable statutes. Um, and in other case slides, it's stated that parties to contracts are presumed to enter into their contracts with reference to the applicable law. So counsel, is it your position that a, a carrier cannot provide coverage greater than that mandated by subdivision 3A5? In other words, could the, could the insurer have in its policy Notwithstanding subdivision 3A5, you get this much more coverage. Um, so 3A5 is a primary, the first sentence of 3A5 provides the primary source of where that coverage comes from. Um, and subdivision seven of um, that same statute is the one that states that um, in certain situations, you can provide more coverage than is required. So the, the distinction here is 3A5 is not a minimum requirement statute. It is a pri priority of coverage statute, as was explained by the court in the Carlson case. Um, and so being a priority of coverage statute, it, it states this is where you get primary coverage 
and then possible sources. It contains exceptions of the rule to underinsurance. Well, I don't policy. think you're answering my question. Could, could an insurance company in its policy say, notwithstanding 3A5, there, whenever you're in an accident, even though you're occupying one of the vehicles, you get the other policy as well? I think a, a, a policy could say that. Um, the State Farm policy in this case does not. So 3A5 is not a ceiling on coverage? Not necessarily. Well, um, not ne what do you mean not necessarily? Is, is, it or, is the first sentence of 3A5 a ceiling on coverage? Um, in this case, yes. In this case, it is a ceiling on coverage because the State Farm policy did not go beyond, did not change what is stated in 3A5. So you have to read the State Farm policy in, con in the context of 3A5. So the case isn't really about the statute, it's about the policy language. I think it's about both. Um, so I think you have to read the statute and the policy in context with one another. So is it your client's contention that 3A5 sentence one is incorporated within the Pontiac policy? Um, correct. In this case, you have to refer to 3A5, and there is nothing in the Pontiac policy that incorporates the Chevy policy or states that we are going to provide coverage um, in addition to the Pontiac policy. And the Pontiac policy, in, in fact, contains a limit of coverage. It does, in fact, state that regardless of the amount of any award, including any judgment, State Farm is not obligated to pay any amount in excess of the available limits under this coverage of this policy, referring to the Pontiac policy. And the limits in the Pontiac policy are $100,000, and that is regardless of the number of vehicles insured. Um, and so it, coming back to 3A5, um, you read that in context with the statute, um, you look first to the Pontiac policy. The Pontiac policy says we are providing $100,000 and no more. And But I, I think the opposing counsel would say that that's true of the Chevy policy as well. I mean, that exact language is in the Chevy policy. So if we're looking at the policy language, why, why wouldn't the Chevy policy also apply here if we never get to the statute? Without looking at the statute, which I, I don't believe that you can do in this case, because again, you have to read the policies in the context of the No Fault Act, um, there is there isn't necessarily any language. Well, let me um, give you: What if she was not in a car at all? What if she was a pedestrian that got hit by an underinsured car? Could both, could they choose which policy apply? So in that case, actually, the last sentence of 3A5 applies. And the last sentence of 3A5 states that if at the time of the accident the injured person is not occupying a motor vehicle or motorcycle, meaning they're a pedestrian or, say, on a bicycle, the injured person is entitled to select any one limit of liability for any one vehicle afforded by a policy under which the injured person is insured. So if, it was if they were a pedestrian, they could choose which policy? Correct. Correct, and that is what. Um, but is that? And you're by? not. Oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry, um, and you're not claiming that the language may, we may choose one or more policies from which to make payment um, would enable you to pick if they were a pedestrian that uh, they had to use the hundred thousand dollar policy. Correct. So in that case, if you were a pedestrian and you get to that language. Um, in that case, 
arguably, I think the, the State Farm policy would contradict the language of 3A5, and I think 3A5 would therefore somewhat override it um, because the, the, the statute does, does say the injured person is entitled to select. And, and I thought that that's why this State Farm policy has this language about the maximum amount that may be paid from all such policies as the single highest applicable limit. I mean, I don't view that as permissive for State Farm in this case of like a pedestrian. I think you would have to do that. And then you could choose like how you make that payment from the two policies. But I don't think that gives you the right to decide that you're gonna pay the $100,000 policy instead of the 250. And given the last sentence of um, 3A5, I believe that would be correct. But in this case, I think it's important um, also to point out that we don't even get to that if language in the state farm policies, um, because in this case, um, the policy, the Pontiac policy does not incorporate the Chevy policy. It does not say that more than one policy applies. It's, it's very clear that just the Pontiac policy applies. So I don't even think you get to the point where in this case, we're looking at that if language in the State Farm Policy. Yeah, I, I understand that argument. I, I noted on page 10 of your brief, you, you say that the Pontiac policy does not, and this is a quote, does not state when and how other policies for underinsured benefits do in fact apply. Um, do, do you agree? I mean, that's, that's a quote from your, from your brief. And then, um, then, then you look to the, the statute to apply the priorities. But isn't it a problem that the policy itself doesn't tell people who are buying insurance about the priorities set in the No Fault Act? Um, I don't think so in this case, um, because I think it's very clear that the principle in Minnesota is that underinsured benefits follow the vehicle, not the person. And when people buy underinsured coverage, it's clear that you're buying it for the vehicle. In this case, it was clear that one premium was paid under one policy for the Pontiac, one premium, a separate premium was paid um, for the Chevrolet under a separate policy. So I think it is clear that you are buying separate coverages for separate vehicles. And again, the general principle that you come back to is that underinsured benefits follow the vehicle. I, I just have a, a curious question, a practical question. Do people often insure different levels of UIM for different cars when they have the same uh, insurer? And I, I don't know that there's a standard practice necessarily, but that is in fact what happened in this case. So in this case, um, for the Pontiac, um, appellant purchased $100,000 in coverage. And for the Chevrolet, there was obviously $250,000 that was purchased. And I think the important thing um, that is reflected there too is that appellant bought four times more coverage than was required, minimum of coverage that is required for underinsurance for the Pontiac. So the minimum requirement for underinsurance that you must buy is $25,000, and that comes from subdivision 3A1 of the statute. That's the minimum requirement statute. And in this case, um, again, appellant bought four times more than that. So if she truly believed that no matter what, whenever she was involved in an accident with the Pontiac, that she was going to get 
$250,000 from the Chevrolet policy, there would be no reason to buy more than the minimum that is required for the Pontiac. You would go out and buy $25,000 for the Pontiac as opposed to the 100 that was purchased. Council, let me make sure I understand State Farm's position regarding the sentence, we may choose one or more policies from which to make payment, end quote. Now, is State Farm's position that notwithstanding the previous sentence, which says that um, it's the single highest applicable limit, that if there's, if two policies are triggered, one with a 250 limit and one with a 100 limit, it can just go ahead and choose the 100 limit. So the language used in that part of the statute does say may. So it does say, the it says the maximum amount that may be paid is the single highest applicable limit. And it says we may choose one or more policies from which to make payment. And may is permissive language and it does give State Farm the choice there. And so State Farm's position is that that language conflicts with the requirement of the statute in connection with pedestrian accidents? In this case, I believe I believe it, it potentially would, um, but again, that is not the situation we obviously have in this case, and you don't even get to I, I appreciate that's not the situation, but your position is that that language conflicts with the statute? In this case, just looking at the plain language of it, 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 it would. Well, isn't there a better interpretation suggesting that the uh, it's the highest applicable limit and then State Farm or any insurer can then decide which file or which policy it's going to bill against. In other words, it can pay 50 from one policy and 200 from another, or it can pay 100 and 150. And that may be the better interpretation of that language um, in this case, yes. It's at least a plausible interpretation? Correct, okay. yes, yes. You don't think it's necessary for you to prevail here to rely on that last provision of the statute, right? Am I reading your position correctly? The last provision of the policy thing? Right, right. Um, correct, correct. We don't even get to that portion of the policy language here because it all depends on that word if. Mm -hmm. And again, it says if more than one State Farm policy applies, which is not the case here. And so it all depends on that word if and if is it's not a vague term, it's, it's very definite that you have to have a situation where more than one state farm policy would apply, which we just simply don't have in this case. So can I just on that point then, so there's the rule that we follow the vehicle, but in this case, she's insured under both vehicles, arguably. I mean, she isn't insured under both vehicles, so you can follow either vehicle. So I'm not sure that gets us anywhere, but if we buy, if we buy Ms. Visser's argument that we never even get to the statute because it complies with the statute and so both policies are in play. What is it in the policies themselves that would say you can only use, you can only choose the Pontiac policy? Is there anything in the actual policy itself if you don't look at the statute that would say you can only choose the Pontiac policy and you can't choose the Chevy policy? There's nothing explicit in the policy that would would say that. Um, but again, it, it, the policies, yes, have to be read in context with, with the law. Um, and in this case, um, the Jurek and the Lafave cases, those prior cases are on point here. Um, the Lafave- I'm uncertain about your argument now. I thought you were relying on provisions in, this, in the Pontiac policy that say, no matter whatever else happens, we're only gonna pay you the limit in this policy, which is $100,000. 
And that was um, more directed to, at one point, an appellant had argued that the Chevrolet policy was somehow incorporated into um, the Pontiac policy, and so that would be more directed at, that position's more directed at that argument. Um, and so if you're looking at it where you say, if, if the argument is that the, the Chevrolet policy, or the Pontiac policy, rather, incorporates the Chevrolet policy, um, that position is more directed at that argument where it's, where it's no, it's, it's, it's not explicitly incorporated because the Pontiac policy limits you to $100,000. And so there's kind of two separate arguments that appellant has made. The first is that the Pontiac policy somehow incorporates the Chevrolet policy. And then the second argument is that the Chevrolet policy kind of stands on its own um, to provide coverage in this case. Um, and so there's just two sets of kind of different arguments or ways of looking at it that have been presented by appellant. Um, and so again, um, if you're saying that the Pontiac policy incorporates the Chevrolet policy, it does not because it in fact states that $100,000 is the most that can be paid under the Pontiac policy. Is there any case law that supports the idea that you can have primary insurance coverage under more than one policy? No, and in fact, the West Bend case um, states just the opposite. So in that case, an employee of an auto body shop was in a customer's vehicle, and so there was the policy that the, the customer's policy that insured the vehicle that was occupied, and then there was also this West Bend policy which was provided by the auto body shop. Um, and the argument there that was made, and it was even admitted in West Bend, that the West Bend policy did consider that vehicle involved in the accident to be a covered auto. But what the West Bend, court in West Bend, Bend said is it would be wholly inconsistent with the statutory priority scheme to interpret the limit specified for that motor vehicle in the first sentence of subdivision 3A5 to mean the UIM limit specified in any policy that extends UIM coverage to a person occupying a motor vehicle not specifically identified or described by the policy. And so you can kind of look at the West Bend policy and correlated to the Chevrolet policy in this case. The Chevrolet policy um, does not specifically identify or describe the Pontiac. And so the same logic applies as in West Bend is where you can't have two co But I, I thought in West Bend the analysis was that the business policy didn't name the insured. Like he, the person wasn't a named insured. And here Ms. Visser is a named insured under both policies. Correct. So that, I, I'm not sure that, that the, that logic flows completely. What am I missing there? So in West Bend, there was one part of the analysis was that it was not a named insured, but the West Bend, there was also this issue of the West Bend policy stated that covered auto, the definition of covered auto under the West Bend policy did in fact include that vehicle that had been involved in the accident and was also insured under this um, policy for the owner of the vehicle. And so you also get to, it got to that analysis as well too. Didn't, counsel, didn't opposing West counsel Bend, suggests uh, that West Bend is distinguishable. Um, I'd like to have you get to that. As long as we're talking about West Bend here, I'd like to have you get to counsel's argument about why he says it's distinguishable. He points to the being co-primary under the statute, says it's excess, says it doesn't apply. What do you do about that? So in this case, um, 
the argument that's being made is in this case is in fact that the Chevy policies and the Pontiac policy are co-primary and West Bend does directly in fact address that situation. It says you can't have um, co-primary policies. And so there is additional discussion about excess in West Bend as well, but it also does have this analysis of you cannot have co-primary. I think he would say, I think he'll tell us when he gets up here, um, and if not, he'll correct me, but but I think he'd say, well, yes, but, the, but that was a statutory argument in West Bend, and this is a policy-based argument. How do you respond to that? Again, you cannot, um, as much as I think appellant would like to just look at the language of the policies here, you cannot read the policy out of context with the No-Fault Act. Council, would it matter? So in this instance, it was the um, the mother, right, who held the policies? Correct. And would it have made a difference if she is the one who was in an accident in the Pontiac? No. Um, so under both policies, the mother and um, the daughter are insureds in the same way. Um, so the definition under the No Fault Act and the policy of an insured is any is a named insured and any of their resident relatives. And there's there's no dispute that um, Amanda Visser was a in fact a resident relative of the named insured in this case. Council, I'm looking at the Pontiac policy at the insuring agreement, and uh, it says we will pay compensatory damages for bodily injury and insured is legally entitled to recover from the owner or driver of an underinsured motor vehicle. And then um, in the face of the insuring agreement, just that section, um, did the uh, underinsured damages sustained by Ms. Visser trigger the Pontiac policy? Yes, yes. Okay, so it triggered the policy. So then where in the rest of the Pontiac policy does it say that the $250,000 limit thus does not apply to Ms. Visser? So the Pontiac policy. Sorry, I, I, I meant the Chevy policy. Oh, the Chevy policy. Is the Chevy policy triggered by the insuring agreement? In this case, no, because you cannot read it out of context with the No Fault Act and with um, Subdivision 3A5 about which, which policy is primary. Where, where in either the Chevy policy or the Pontiac policy is there an indication that instead of just reading the policy, the insured also needs to refer to the no-fault law. Um, and so I don't know that there's any indication of that necessarily in the policy, um, but again, the insureds in this case were paying two separate premiums for separate coverages for the vehicles. Well, so I know there were two separate premiums. I'm just saying, how is the insured supposed to know that um, even though the language of the insuring agreement indicates the policy is triggered, it's really not because there's a provision in, in uh, 3A5. How are they supposed to know that? And so I think the language overall, if you read the overall language of the Chevy policy, it refers to your car. This policy is insuring the Chevrolet, which is what is defined as your car in the Chevy policy. And so it- Yeah, I but think the insuring agreement says it's insuring the person. And so in this case, however, the overall policy and what the premium was paid for was the Chevy. Um, and so, and again, you come back to that principle of- Do you agree the insuring agreement insures the person, not the car? In the language of um, the Chevrolet policy here, um, I just wanna make sure I'm on the same page. Um, 
Well, you said earlier that nothing in the in the Chevy or the other policy directs which policy applies. I mean, kind of, I think in answer to this line of these questions, you already you said that maybe they're in a corporation argument that might be the case. But just looking at the plain language separate from the statute, nothing in the policy says that one or the other applies. Correct. Other than, <clears throat> excuse me. Correct. Other than. Of course, again, we come back to your pain. The overall policy, the one applies to the Chevy, the other applies to but the Pontiac. as an uninsured motorist, and, and, and I, I have a couple of questions, but I think Justice Chudich had. But I, I'd, I'd appreciate it if I could get an answer to my question. Does the insuring agreement in the Chevy policy insure the person and not the car? Um, so the by its plain language. So the language, by its plain language, the language does refer to the person. Um, but again, you come back to the overall policy ensures the vehicle refers to the vehicle and in Minnesota under insurance vehicles, the principle is, is that you, you follow the vehicle. Justice Tudich, did you? Okay, Justice Teeson. Thanks. Um, so, but on this issue of the co-primary and kind of this last discussion, doesn't the fact that if she was a pedestrian and was hit defeat that argument? Because there you would have two primary, two co-primary policies. So in this case, um, you would, again, you'd go back to the, stat, the language of 3A5, and I don't think you would have two co-primary um, policies in that case. So it says, if at the time of the accident, the injured person is not occupying a motor vehicle, the injured person is entitled to select any one limit of liability for any one vehicle afforded by a policy under which the injured person is insured. Well, I mean, there's the anti-stacking rules, but in terms of, I guess the way I can see primary is you can, which is gonna go first. And in that case, either one could go first. So either, both are primary in that sense, right? Either one could go first, but you do still have to select just one. Um, and so, Possibly in the case of a pedestrian, um, that would be an exception. But um, in this case, again, we don't obviously have a pedestrian. And I think. And the legislature in that case made a policy judgment about benefiting pedestrians versus additional insureds under a policy for, for whatever policy reason they made. And that policy language in the statute. That policy choice, I shouldn't say policy in the context of insurance policies. I'm going to hopelessly confuse everybody. But but the, the public policy choice that the legislature made in that statute is going to control over the policy language, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, and with that, I see my time is up. Um, and so if there are no further questions. Justice Hudson has a question. Um, Council, you would agree, I, I'm assuming that, um, as Mr. Barber says, there is nothing in either policy that limits coverage to the occupied vehicle, that we have to get to the statute to get to get that principle. Is that correct? I mean, there is nothing in these policies that says, you know, she's only, she's only entitled to the $250,000 limit. Um, she would have only been entitled to that had she been injured in the Chevy. Correct. But again, um, ultimately what it comes back to is that you have to read it in context with the no-fault statute. And there is the idea throughout the overall policies that each policy applies to the vehicle which it insures. Council, I just want to make sure that your answer to Justice Anderson's last question didn't contradict something you told, I think you told me earlier, which is that there's nothing in the statute that would prevent a, a carrier from offering coverage that's more than 
the first sentence of 3A5. In other words, it could say, notwithstanding 3A5, coverage will follow the person and not the car. Could, could a carrier lawfully do that, or is it precluded from doing so by 3A5? So, and just, just to clarify, because I think what Justice Anderson's question had been about was pedestrians, and so again, there's um, different policy considerations that the legislature had for pedestrians, which I think is maybe the reason for the distinction that was made, made there. Um, and so the question, um, just so I'm understanding it correctly, was um, whether 3A5, whether a insurer could say more than one policy applies for 3A5, and that's um, a situation, I guess, that would be um, similar to excess insurance or something similar to that. But could an insurer provide that, um, that regardless of whether the person is in the is in a, an insured vehicle or not, more than one UIM policy is triggered by the accident? In other words, is 3A5 sentence one a floor or is it a ceiling? So 3A5, what it does is sets priority. It doesn't necessarily set a floor or a ceiling. It's not a minimum requirement statute. The minimum requirement statute for underinsured benefits comes from comes from 3A1. Um, and so what you have is 3A5 directing where to look at in various situations, whether it be you're in a motor vehicle, pedestrian provides, if you're a pedestrian, it provides a bit of a different situation. So it doesn't necessarily set a ceiling or a floor. It it directs where to look for coverage. Thank you, Council. Um, Mr. Barber, you have five minutes for rebuttal. All right, I'll just quickly make some um, points. The Pontiac policy, it does not set any priorities and it does not incorporate 3A5. So under Lynch, this court should not read it into it and um, that kind of puts the kvash on that argument for State Farm. Um, the may choose language does not contradict any of the application language. It doesn't contradict the grant of insurance coverage language. It just says that it may choose which file to pick from. Um, the West Bend case, it analyzes both the statute and the applicable policies, and it says under the statute, you can't use that to get co-primary status, and that's not what we're asking for. Then West Bend goes on to look at the two policies at issue, and it says the clear language has a priority scheme, so one is primary and one is excess. Under our policies, both apply at the same time because of their language, so that's why we're materially different from West Bend. Um, the Pontiac policy, does incorporate the limit from the Chevy policy because they both apply. So the application and being an insured is what triggers the higher limit to apply. Council, what about the language on page 26 of the Pontiac policy under limits? Paragraph two, these underinsured motor vehicle coverage limits are the most we will pay regardless of the number of vehicles insured. Correct. So that prohibits same policy stacking. So if there were multiple vehicles under the policy, under the Pontiac policy, 
you couldn't multiply the UIM limit. That's what that precludes. And the same language is in the Chevy policy. So if there were multiple vehicles under the Chevy policy, you couldn't multiply it. What in the policy says that it just relates to a stacking situation? Right, so you read that provision, the limits provision in context with the deciding fault in the amount and the if other underinsured motorist coverages um, apply. And when you read the three together, what they do is they limit two types of stacking. So if there are multiple vehicles on the same policy, and it also prohibits cross-policy stacking. You don't stack the Pontiac policy on top of the Chevy policy. And then when you get to the, the middle of the if other underinsured motorist benefits apply section, it says if more than one applies, you're entitled to the single highest limit. We just don't stack the two. And the language the Chief Justice read is also found in the Chevy policy? That's correct. The two policies are identical except for ensuring the Chevy versus the Pontiac and their limits. Except that it's clear when you read the definition of policy that, that Pontiac is talking about the Pontiac car and the Chevy policy is talking about the Chevrolet car. But then you go to the if more than one UIM policy applies and... It just feels very circular to me. And that's because the two policies have identical language, which is why they both apply and Ms. Visser is able to get the $250,000. Unless... Is, is there anything in... Is there anything in the legislative history or why this statute was adopted to support your argument that 3A5 simply doesn't apply here? In the legislative... Or the, that the, I guess the whole... Insurance Act doesn't apply here because the, the policy meets all the requirements. Correct. I'm asking if there's oh. anything. Oh, I mean, we've got we've got the Bobbitt case, we've got the Juster case, we've got um, I cited a bunch of different examples of it. Travelers versus Bloomington Steel in a different type of insurance context. Um, American Family versus Ryan in a homeowner's insurance policy. But those are kind of our court principles. Is there anything in when the legislature was enacting this kind of new version in 1985? that what they were doing is not is is saying these are the rules you have to follow but you don't have to even look here if your insurance policies satisfy all these requirements so that takes us to subdivision 7 and this court's analysis from lynch which says if you provide the coverage required by the no fault act we don't need to look at the no fault act you've satisfied those floors those default rules and as long as you're providing more coverage then it's okay and it's only if there's a dispute over which is primary, something's primary and something's excess that you get to 3A5? Correct. Okay. Unless the court. I think we're good, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.